Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Primetime News. Today is Friday, February 2nd. I'm Leslie Palma. And I'm Teresa Watson. Thanks for joining us this evening. In our top story, we will report on six more pro-lifers who have been convicted on federal charges for a rescue of an abortion mill in Tennessee. In Abortion in the News, I'll tell you when the U.S. Supreme Court will hear an important abortion case and when we might get the decision. In political news in a nutshell, I'll try to make sense of the dueling primary and caucus in Nevada next week and tell you about the ambitious agenda pro-life groups are devising if former President Donald Trump is re-elected. You may have heard about a new study that revealed shocking numbers of rape-related pregnancies in states with laws protecting the unborn. We'll tell you why it's not true, and we'll talk to a pro-life activist whose life began when his teenage mother was raped. We'll close with Baby Olivia, an amazing animated video that tracks the development of a baby in the womb and could be shown to public school students across West Virginia. Please stay with us. Six pro-life activists on Tuesday were convicted of federal charges for a rescue effort in March 2021 at the Carafim Killing Center in Mount Juliet, Tennessee. Ranging in age from 50 to 70 and facing up to 11 years in prison are Chet Gallagher, Heather Idani, Calvin Zastro, Coleman Boyd, Paul Vaughn, and Dennis Green. A total of 11 pro-lifers were arrested with one pleading guilty and testifying against the six convicted Tuesday. Sentencing is set for July 2nd and five of the six will remain free until then. The sixth is Heather Idani, a Michigan resident who also was convicted in a similar case in Washington, DC. She has been remanded to prison while awaiting sentences in both cases. The remaining four people arrested in Tennessee will be tried separately on lesser charges. As you may recall, nine pro-lifers were convicted this past August for a rescue they did in October 2020 at the DC Killing Center of abortionist Cesar Santangelo. In both the Tennessee and DC cases, the pro-lifers were convicted of violating the 1994 Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, a Bill Clinton era law that had the effect of putting abortion businesses in a protected category not enjoyed by any other business. For a first offense, someone convicted of a face violation can be sentenced up to a year in prison, but the pro-life activists in both Tennessee and DC also were convicted of a conspiracy against rights charge, and that can carry a 10-year sentence. The first face offense leveled against a pro-lifer did not have the outcome Biden's Justice Department hoped for. Pennsylvania activist Mark Hauk was arrested for a minor skirmish outside of Philadelphia Planned Parenthood with an escort who pushed Hauk's 11-year-old son. Hauk was acquitted of all charges and is now suing the federal government and running for Congress. Pro-lifers are united in their belief that FACE is unfair. U.S. Representative Chip Roy, who represents San Antonio, has introduced legislation in the House to repeal the FACE Act, and we caught up with him at the Students for Life Pro-Life Summit in D.C. last month to ask him about it. Let's have a look. Hi, it's Leslie Palma, Pro-Life Primetime News with Congressman Chip Roy from Texas. Thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to me, Congressman. Yeah, good morning, Leslie. Great to be here. Great crowd. Tons of people here, enthusiastic for life. It's great. I don't think I've ever seen so many people. Yeah, it's amazing. (laughs) So I want to talk to you at your speeches. You were talking about that you introduced legislation to repeal the FACE Act. Why, Why is that a priority for you? Yeah, I mean, like right now, like we've got the FACE Act in place, but unfortunately it's being used almost entirely against pro-lifers, right? It's not being used to go after protect churches or frankly to go after people who are are against life. Uh, 
uh, and you have, I think the numbers are something like about 130 to 4 in wow. terms of the ways that the the uh, FBI and the Department of Justice are using it to go after people who are pro-life. Infamously, we had the situation of Mark Houck, right, in, in Philadelphia, who was simply at a, a pro-life uh, uh, protest of an abortion clinic, but following the rules and, and whatnot, and, and somebody went after his son, and he pushed back, and there's kind of a skirmish. They, they did not go after him under state law, but then they tried to go after him under the FACE Act. Good news is a jury threw it out, yeah. but this is what is wrong. It's being used abusively against mm -hmm. life. So let's just repeal it. Why should it be in place? And importantly, why should we fund it? And that's my question for my Republican colleagues. Why are we giving money uh, to the Department of Justice to continue to fund the abusive use of the FACE Act against pro-lifers? Do you have much support? There's a lot of support. There's a lot of people in Congress who understand this is important. And I think they understand the need to do that. But, you know, if you keep giving them money, they're going to keep prosecuting it. Right. And we're not going to get the president and the Democrats in the Senate right now to sign that law. So we should defund it. And we could do that with the power of the purse. But my colleagues, you know, are unfortunately too afraid of a shutdown. But I think we need to do our part to stand up for life by, you know, taking the money away from enforcement of the FACE Act. Well, I agree. Well, thank you so much, Congressman. And uh, you said you're campaigning? Yeah, I'm out on the campaign trail just doing Dude. the thing. I mean, look, we'll figure out our nominee and go from here. But I, I just think we need, no matter who's in the White House next year, we need someone who is unequivocally pro-life, somebody who understands the importance of these heartbeat bills across the country. Uh, and so that's really important. And, and the other thing I'd point out is we need people who will understand that life needs to be protected, not just in the womb, but all the way through. We need to stand with moms. We encourage adoption. We need to not leave these, these women kind of isolated, just, you know, when, when, when we fight to win the battle to protect life in the womb, let's be there for mom. So I think that's an important part of this. Great. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Leslie. The Supreme Court on Monday said it would hear oral arguments March 26th in a case that could impact the way that abortion drug mifepristone is prescribed and how long into pregnancy it can be used to kill an unborn child. It's the first time since the court's June 2022 ruling overturning Roe v. Wade that the justices will weigh in on the abortion issue. A group of pro-life physicians and medical groups came together to form the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine and last year challenged the FDA's approval of Mifepristone in 2000. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said the challenge came too late, but it did rule that allowing the, bill, the pill to be used later in pregnancy and distributed by mail could pose a danger to mothers. That's what the Supreme Court will be looking at in the case that's expected to be decided in late June. The Justice Department and Danko Laboratories, the manufacturer of Mifepristone, have submitted a brief in the case urging the Supreme Court to reverse the Fifth Circuit's ruling on safety measures because it, quote, threatens to destabilize the pharmaceutical industry. Also, 22 rapidly pro-abortion governors who came together to form the Reproductive Freedom Alliance are calling on the High Court to preserve widespread access to the drug. Priests for Life is among the pro-life groups that will be filing an, an amicus brief in support of the Fifth Circuit decision. Another abortion case could wind up before the court. Liberty Council has filed a brief asking the justices to review Riley versus City of Harrisburg, where a buffer zone law restricts pro-life speech, but no other speech outside a Planned Parenthood killing center in the Pennsylvania capital. When President Biden delivers his State of the Union address on March 7th, a woman who aborted her disabled baby will be seated next to First Lady Jill Biden. Kate Cox and the daughter she named Chloe became international news after the Dallas area mother said she was not able to have an abortion in Texas even after her daughter was diagnosed with trisomy 18, an often fatal disorder that causes medical complications for those who do survive. Texas protects most babies from abortion unless the pregnancy threatens the mother's life. Cox ultimately was able to end the baby's life in New Mexico, which has no restrictions on abortion. Biden and Vice President Harris have made restoring abortion across the nation the centerpiece of their re-election campaign. 
The Wisconsin Assembly last week approved a bill that would protect babies from abortion at 14 weeks, except in cases of rape, incest, or protect the health or life of the mother. If the bill becomes law, it would then go before the voters in an April referendum. But Democratic Governor Tony Evers said that if the Senate passes the bill, he would veto it before state residents have a chance to decide for themselves. In 2022, 14% of abortions in Wisconsin were performed between weeks 13 and 20. Pennsylvania residents could one day be forced to pay for other people's abortions with their tax dollars after the state Supreme Court this week ordered a lower court to reconsider a law that bars the use of Medicaid funds to kill the unborn. While Planned Parenthood hailed the ruling as a victory for reproductive freedom, Maria Gallagher of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation said the women of the Commonwealth and their babies need comprehensive care and support, not a blank check for taxpayer-funded abortions. France seems to be a nation of two minds when it comes to babies. In an effort to reverse the country's declining birth rate, President Emmanuel Macron announced a plan that includes offering free fertility tests to 25-year-olds as part of their medical checkups. But meanwhile, the French National Assembly passed a bill that would make the country the first one in the world to enshrine abortion rights in its national constitution. The bill still must be passed by the Senate and the French Congress, a special body consisting of both chambers. Abortion activists are hoping the bill is passed in time for International Women's Day on March 8th. And finally, Catholic University psychology professor Melissa Goldberg has been fired after inviting an abortion doula into the classroom to discuss how she coaches women through abortions and helps, quote, pregnant men get ready to deliver their babies. For the record, those are biological females who like to pretend they are men, but for some reason still want to give birth. In a statement to the Daily Signal, the college said it was appalled to learn about reports regarding this guest speaker. It does not reflect our mission and values as a university that is committed to upholding the dignity of life at all stages. And that's abortion in the news. Former President Donald Trump and former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, the last remaining major 2024 GOP presidential contenders, will both be competing for votes in Nevada next week. But they will not be on the same ballot. They won't even be competing on the same day. Instead, Haley will be on the Tuesday, February 6th primary ballot, and Trump, coming off of victories in Iowa and New Hampshire, will be up for consideration by Republican caucus goers two days later. The two contests are a product of a new state law requiring primary presidential elections and the insistence of the state GOP to continue holding caucuses as they have since the 1980s. At stake in the party-run caucuses, where Trump will only face the largely unknown Texas businessman and pastor Ryan Binkley, are 26 delegates to the Republican National Convention. For Haley, a victory in the state-run primary over four other largely unknown Quixotic candidates would simply be a matter of bragging rights as she works to build momentum ahead of South Carolina's primary later in February. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott and former Vice President Mike Pence, who have since dropped out of the race, will remain on the ballot. Pro-life groups are crafting a sweeping agenda for former President Donald Trump to implement if he returns to the White House. Nearly 100 pro-life and conservative groups are eyeing ways the former president, if elected, can use the federal government, including the Federal Trade Commission and the U.S. Postal Service, to restrict abortion access. Many of the policies are the same ones Trump put in place and President Joe Biden ended, but this time they'd have much more impact post-Obs. Kristen Hawkins, the president of Students for Life, told Politico, that due to not having 60 votes in the Senate and not having a firm pro-life majority in the House, 
I think administrative action is where we're going to see the most action after 2024 if President Trump or another pro-life president is elected. The Heritage Foundation's 2025 Presidential Transition Project, a group of anti-abortion organizations, is working to draft executive orders rolling back Biden policies, like making abortions available in some cases at Virginia at VA hospitals and collecting resumes from activists interested in working in the federal government. Meanwhile, although defending abortion rights is one of his top campaign messages, President Joe Biden's ability to act on abortion without Congress's support on the issue is limited. Oral arguments for a Supreme Court case that could restrict access to abortion pills are set for March 26, the court said Monday. Long Island Democrat Tom Susie, who is running for the House seat vacated by Representative George Santos, has received the backing of the pro-abortion group Reproductive Freedom for All. The former three-term congressman will face Republican Maisie Melissa Phillip in the February 13 special election. The mother of seven has said she is strongly pro-life, but would not back a nationwide law protecting babies from abortion. And that's political news in a nutshell. A research study led by a Planned Parenthood medical director concluded that nearly 65,000 women became pregnant by rape in the 14 states that protect most babies from abortion. The mainstream media dutifully reported this startling statistic as gospel. You probably heard it on the news last week or read it online. Just one problem, it isn't true, as the authors themselves almost admitted. Our estimates have several limitations, the authors wrote in a story that accompanied the study results in the Journal of the American Medical Association Internal Medicine. Most importantly, they said, limited reliable information is available on rape victimization and rape-induced pregnancy. To our knowledge, no recent reliable state-level data on completed vaginal rapes are available. But that didn't stop these researchers from guessing what they think is happening in the 14 states. According to an analysis of the study performed by Charlotte Lozier scholar, Dr. Michael New, the researchers used eight-year-old surveys from the Centers for Disease Control to guess how many rapes might have occurred nationally, then applied data from the Bureau of Justice Statistics to guess how many victims were females between 15 and 45 years old, and topped it off with FBI statistics from five years ago to conjure how many rapes likely would have occurred in the 14 states and how many of those rapes would result in pregnancy. They came up with two horrifying numbers, 519,981 rapes in the 14 states, resulting in 64,565 pregnancies. In a story for National Review, New wrote, to call those figures an exaggeration would be an understatement. The article is frankly one of the worst and most misleading pieces of advocacy research that I have ever encountered in my years as social scientist. Numerous studies in the last 25 years have come to similar conclusions, which is that about 32,000 pregnancies in the U.S. each year are conceived in rape. So it is very unlikely that there is anywhere near 65,000 such pregnancies in the 14 states, some of which are among the least populated regions of the country. And if there are 520,000 rapes in those states, that to me seems like the story. The Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network estimates there are 463,634 instances of rape of those 12... 12 and older each year. The abortion study just doesn't add up. Most of the outlets reporting the fake news failed to include the fact that the lead researcher was Samuel Dickman, an abortionist who is the medical director for Planned Parenthood of Montana and a plaintiff in several lawsuits challenging Montana abortion laws. 
Many of the researchers, including Dickman, received fees from pro-abortion foundations while the study was ongoing. Rape is a violent act that can, of course, lead to pregnancy, but the study seems to suggest that abortion is the cure. It's not. It will not erase the rape. And we know that about half of the women impregnated by rape choose not to punish their innocent children for the sins of their fathers. Tonight, we've invited one of those children conceived in rape to join us to tell us his story. Mark Repke is a pro-life activist we work with every year at the March for Life. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So Mark, your birth mom was very young when she was raped and you were conceived. Can you tell us what you know about her and about the family that adopted you? So I'm, I'm very lucky that I've known my birth mother for now over half of my life. Uh, I met her when I was 19 years old. And so I've had a relationship with her and her children since then. Uh, she was just a little over two months into being 14 years old when she went to a 4th of July party in Jefferson, South Dakota with a cousin of hers and unfortunately became a victim of rape at that party. And nine months later, I was born. She kept me and, and never really had a thought of anything else, as, as she's told me. Um, and so from that aspect, I, I think that I was very lucky that I was conceived by someone who had a valuation on life um, and that chose to keep me because she didn't have to. Uh, you know, even though it was still illegal to abort uh, me, there were definitely options for her to do that. So when did you then become um, involved in the pro-life movement? And tell us about your activism. Well, this is kind of a, an interesting thing. You asked me about my family as well. So in the family that I was adopted into, there are four adopted children, four store-boughts and three homegrowns. Uh, so we had a kind of a combination there. And, and we always had a, a very strong valuation on life. And when people ask me when I got involved in the pro-life movement, I, I think it comes back to one incidence in my childhood. Um, when I was in first grade, uh, I got in trouble for writing a word on the blackboard that somebody told me to write and I didn't know what it meant. So I proved that I could spell it and I got in trouble. So my dad said, if you ever have a word that you don't know what it means, you can come to me and ask. Well, one day uh, riding on the school bus uh, in the 70s, I heard the word abortion being tossed around by some of the high school students and I didn't know what that word meant. So I went home and I asked my dad what that meant. And at that point, I don't think we'd had any natural born children in our family. It was just adopted children. So as my dad explained to me that there were people that killed their children because they didn't want them, that was such a foreign, uh, foreign concept to me. I mean, I, I grew up on a farm where if a cow went into to labor at three o'clock in the morning, you went out to the barn at three o'clock in the morning and you helped that cow birth that calf and you went and you helped the, the hogs birth their pigs and you you valued every life because, well, one, it was your livelihood, but also there was a valuation on life. So that night, I barely slept a wink. I just remember the next day in school just being absolutely exhausted, both mentally and physically. And from that point on, I did anything I could, anywhere I could uh, to, to be pro-life, to encourage uh, pro-life candidates, um, County Fair, I just knew that, you know, while Jimmy Carter was a decent guy, Ronald Reagan was better on the life issue. And I went out in the County Fair and put bumper stickers on everybody's car 
in the in the parking lot that I could find. I took a rag, cleaned off the bumper, put on bumper stickers because I just felt that strongly about it. And then by the time I was 15, I was at the state Republican convention, uh, gave a pro-life speech that was covered in several newspapers. And from then on, it's just always been a part of who I am, what I am, and what I do. Wow, that's amazing. So when you hear abortion advocates insisting that moms must be able to abort their children conceived in rape, what would you like to say back to them? The circumstances of my conception do not determine my worth as a human being. That's, I mean, that's just the basic part of it. If you took everybody walking down the street and you had to pick out who was the child from rape and who was the child from love, you couldn't do it because they're not any different. There is a valuation on life. Life has intrinsic value. And I know a lot of pro-lifers fall into this. Well, what if we aborted the guy who, who cured cancer? Or what if we aborted the guy that did? No, life has value in and of itself. Uh, it's why 100% pro-life, you know, from, from creation from creation to natural death. It's, there is a valuation on life. And it is a valuation that cannot be monetized. It cannot be determined. It cannot be quantified because every life has infinite potential at the beginning and at any point throughout it. So the fact that that you must be allowed to kill is just ridiculous. The other thing that I think is very important is a study I saw this year for the first time, that women who were not allowed to have abortion due to the laws or or restrictions in their country or access, 97% at five years were glad that they didn't abort their child. Yes, I know that study, the turnaway study, the pro-aborts use it to opposite effect, but that's the bottom line. Yep. (laughs) Well, Mark, do you have any thoughts about this latest study? I think it's a dangerous thing. If if we start putting quantifiers on who you can kill, we already have a problem in this country um, with people being murdered, people being killed. Just... D.C. this morning, I saw a news story while I was this morning, I had the news playing in the background. A 16-year-old girl is is going to prison uh, until she's 21, unfortunately, and only that long, for killing somebody over a packet of sweet and sour sauce at McDonald's. When life has become so low value in people's eyes that it's something to be taken over sweet and sour sauce, it's ridiculous. Girls, I've, I've read stories about girls who got abortions because they wanted to fit into their prom dress. And that to me is just, we have lost the value of life. So how in the world uh, can, can we can, you know, consider us ourselves a good nation, a good people, when we don't value life at all? I mean, yeah. it, it just is, it's horrible. And the thing is, is that these studies come out all the time and they're, they're, well, the the old adage, uh, statistics don't lie, but statisticians do. You can take one little set of parameters and extrapolate and extrapolate and extrapolate, and then you get something. Well, the reality is, is that these are lives we're talking about. These aren't numbers on a sheet of paper. And yes, rape is a horrible thing. It is a horrible thing whenever, however it happens, it is a horrible thing. But you don't erase the rape by killing the child. You're extending the trauma because a lot of these people, as as you know, one of the big things that I do at the March for Life is the silent no more testimonies. These are women who regret their abortions 
and they're standing there, parents, uh, mothers and fathers who regret being involved with abortion. You're now taking the fact that you were raped and you're adding the fact that you killed your child on top of that. That is a lot of trauma for anyone to deal with. And I think we have to look at other solutions. There should never be a reason for people to, to need or feel they need abortion uh, to be able to move forward in their life. And I think that's one of the big failings of, the, uh, of both the pro-life and the pro-abortion movement. Because the pro-abortion movement is, is, you know, people say we're taking rights away from women and we don't respect women. But the pro-life movement is the one that believes that women are incredible, that they can have children and do all of the other things. The pro-abortion side believes that women are so incapable that if they have a child, their life is over and they'll never be able to achieve anything that they want to do. And I think that is a very, very dangerous thing. Well, Mark, you know, we we really appreciate, um, you know, you sharing all of your story with us. And we look forward to seeing you every January. And we appreciate you coming on this evening uh, to put a face uh, to this, you know, situation that we're dealing with. So thank you so very much. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for the excellent work that you all do. I mean, it's not easy to come up with content on a regular basis to have these shows and to do these things. So I really appreciate people that do this. And, and I am always thrilled to be able to be a part of it. All right. Thanks, Mark. Good night. Good night. Thank you. A new bill in the West Virginia legislature would help kids understand that human life begins at conception. Baby Olivia, an amazing animated video that walks through the development of an unborn baby, may be shown to public school students all across the state if the legislation is approved. The bill would include the video as part of the state curriculum, included as a requirement to show students the short educational video about an unborn baby's development, including his, her brain, heart, and other vital organs early in pregnancy. We hope you enjoy this amazing three-minute video. This is Olivia. Though she has yet to greet the outside world, she has already completed an amazing journey. This is the moment that life begins. A new human being has come into existence. At fertilization, her gender, ethnicity, hair color, eye color, and countless traits are already determined. She begins to implant in the uterus about one week after fertilization. Her cells organize into what we call an embryo. At three weeks in one day, just 22 days after fertilization, Olivia's heartbeat can be detected. The buds of her arms and legs appear by four weeks. She begins to move between five and six weeks with both spontaneous and reflexive movements. At six weeks from fertilization, her brain activity can be recorded and bone formation begins. She can bring her hands together at seven and a half weeks and separate fingers and toes emerge. She can also begin to hiccup. At the beginning of the ninth week, Olivia will have grown from a single cell into nearly one billion cells, and she is now called 
the fetus. She will suck her thumb and swallow, grasp an object, touch her face, sigh and stretch. At 11 weeks, she is playing in the womb, moving her body and exploring her environment. Her taste bud cells have matured by week 12, but are still scattered throughout her mouth. Her mother will first sense Olivia's movements between 14 and 18 weeks, an event called quickening. Beginning at 18 weeks, ultrasounds show speaking movements in her voice box. Around 20 weeks, with a lot of help, babies have survived outside the womb. At 27 weeks, her eyes are responding to light. She can recognize her parents' voices and will even recognize lullabies and stories. Olivia has gone on an amazing journey during these last nine months. She will soon signal to her mother that it is time for delivery and greet the outside world. Thank you so much for joining us on Pro-Life Primetime News, produced at Priest for Life headquarters in Titusville, Florida. If you like our show, please support us by making a donation to ProLifeGift.org. These donations help fund all of our work here at Priest for Life, which enables us to continue educating, equipping, and activating God's people to end abortion. For all your Pro-Life News updates during the week, please follow us on X at Pro-Life News Show. I'm Teresa Watson, Executive Manager. I'm Leslie Palma, Communications Director. Remember, life is the only choice. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.